in terms of total military strength, the United States would not trade places with any nation on Earth. We have taken major steps in the past months to maintain our lead, and we do not propose to lose it. Secondly, the United States does not find it necessary to explode 50 megaton nuclear devices to confirm that we have many times more nuclear power than any other nation on Earth, and that these capabilities are so deployed so as to survive any sneak attack and thus enable us to devastate any nation which initiates a nuclear attack on the United States or its allies. It is essential to the defense of the free world that we maintain this relative position. In view of the Soviet action, it will be the policy of the United States to proceed in developing nuclear weapons to maintain this superior capability for the defense of the free world against any aggressor. No nuclear test in the atmosphere will be undertaken as the Soviet Union has done for so-called psychological or political reasons. But should such tests be deemed necessary to maintain our responsibilities for free world security, in the light of our evaluation of Soviet tests, they will be undertaken only to the degree that the orderly and essential scientific development of new weapons has reached a point where effective progress is not possible without such tests, and only within limits that restrict the fallout from such tests to an absolute minimum. In the meantime, as a matter of prudence, we shall make necessary preparations for such tests so as to be ready in case it becomes necessary to conduct them. In spite of the evidence which shows very clearly that the Soviet Union was preparing its own tests while pretending to negotiate their cessation at Geneva, the United States maintains its determination to achieve a world free from the fear of nuclear tests and nuclear war. We will continue to be ready to sign the Nuclear Test Treaty, which provides for adequate inspection and control. The facts necessary for such a treaty are all evident. The argument on both sides have all been made. A draft is on the table, and our negotiators are ready to meet. As November 1963 began, President Kennedy had emergency meetings on Vietnam. He also received members of the U.S. Industrial Payroll Savings Committee and had meetings on the goings-on in Berlin. Meanwhile, the U.S. Secret Service concluded that the more secure and larger of the two locations for the president's upcoming fundraising luncheon in Dallas would be the Women's Building at Fair Park at the east side of downtown rather than the trademark on the west side near Dealey Plaza. Despite the recommendation, the state Democratic Party leaders in Texas settled on the trademark. On November 6th, Gene Shepard signed on from WOR, talking about and poking fun at the 1964 World's Fair, slated to open the following April. You know, speaking of New York, you probably see life in the raw, and New York and American life rawer here in New York than any other place in the world. You could not see it in Cleveland. 
having lived there for a while, I can tell you that, that those people don't know, you see, in a sense, because they kind of live life. Here in New York, we engineer it. It really isn't lived in New York here. It is engineered, literally. I'm serious about that. Most of the writers in America live in New York. Now, I'm going to explain to you what is meant by engineering life. Most of the writers live in New York, and they do not hesitate at all to write about what's happening in, say, let's say, Birmingham. You know, the engineer, they write it like mad. No hesitation at all. I wonder how they would feel, say, if somebody in Cleveland were to write about life in New York and put it down. But life is engineered in many ways here in New York. People who come to New York are different from people who stay in Cleveland or Birmingham or Miami or Quebec City or wherever it is you say. They come for specific reasons. Most of them they are not aware of. Much of the coming to New York is because of running. Uh, <laughs> it's not really coming to New York. It's being like chased to New York uh, for one reason or another. But I saw a great example of the New York attitude towards engineering life just the other day on Fifth Avenue. The New York World's Fair will be the first World's Fair that is engineered. It, is, it doesn't just grow, you know. They, like poor old Chicago, they just cleared a lot of land and put up some stuff and waited for the people to come. And that's exactly what happened in the Chicago World's Fair. And it, you know, it was a big ball. People laughed and hollered and hit each other and went home, and then that was the end of the fair. A few years later, that was it. Not New York. Only in New York could this happen. There is a window display in the window of a big airline's here in New York, and it says, Airlines, I think it's United, United Airlines buys one millionth fare ticket. I says, buys one million fare ticket. They have bought them. That doesn't mean United Airlines. Oh, don't look so confused at me, ladies and gentlemen. It does not mean they have bought one million fare tickets. The sign says they have bought the one millionth fare ticket. I couldn't, they have not yet sold the other 999,999, you see. I said, well, this is fantastic. The fair is like a half a year off. They haven't sold ticket one. They have just sold the one millionth ticket. Well, the way they have done this is this is, you see, it's quite obvious that, first of all, they assume they're going to sell a million tickets. That's a pretty good, that's engineering success right there. I mean, it would be sad to hold the one millionth ticket when the total amount ever sold was, say, like 800000 However, this is a New York attitude. Nothing happens by chance. Now, in the old days, the one millionth fare ticket would have been bought by some butcher from Brooklyn. Walked in, you got the one millionth fare! They hit him, you know, they bit him, and he wins the trip to Tahiti, you know, and they give him a horseshoe that he puts around his neck, and his picture is taken, and it shows up in the post, and he winds up on the Ed Sullivan Show. He, you know, just like... Not in New York. It's not going to happen like that. Never. There's going to be a ticket marked 999,909, and there's going to be one marked 1 million and 1. There ain't going to be no Brooklyn butcher at this World's Fair. And I'm sure that they are now busily selling the 1,000th ticket. They are now selling the 500,000th ticket. They are selling the 100,000th ticket. And each one of these tickets will be kept, you see, as a souvenir by the big company that buys it, as if they were there on that day. And a hundred years from now, people say, gee, wasn't that fantastic that it just so happened that United Airlines was going through the terminal, right through that turnstile. It could have been a crummy old butcher. It could have been a lousy little fat housewife from the Bronx. It was United Airlines. Isn't that fantastic? Talk the cheap talk, baby talk. And that's my weakness now. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Cheap talk. 
All right, cut it out, there, gang. Cut it out. That's that's New York, and I, I couldn't believe it. I thought you were crying out loud. And and, and somehow, uh, and, and there it shows, of course, shows uh, Robert Moses. He's probably the best named man I can think of offhand. Shows Robert Moses uh, handing the ticket <laughs> to this big executive. <laughs> yeah, it was a stone one. You're right. And uh, it was funny. It was carved. It was like a tablet. It was a very funny thing. But uh, it, it, somehow, to me, this this uh, this is a forerunner of things to come with this fair. It's been one hassle after the other. And about this kind of little trivial stuff. Can't you see this guy catching this kid, getting in, trying to get in on a quarter ticket? I mean, hitting them and hollering. And, and uh, it's, it's just somehow uh, the whole scene. When I heard about the IBM exhibit with the stainless steel trees in front of it, <laughs> and the people wall, they have a thing called the people wall. Yeah, the IBM exhibit. It's a wall of people. I don't know how they do that. I know about, you know, I know about human pyramids. I've been in several human pyramids myself, you know, Roy. A couple of human pyramids. I will never forget one night out of Jones Beach. Oh, boy. We do the cops and everything, the whole thing. But that was another story. But this thing of the human people wall, they call it the people wall. Didn't you see the pictures of the IBM exhibit? Yeah, well, they're overcompensating. I, I have a feeling that people who make machines are very embarrassed about it, you see. And so they have to, all the little walls, you know, and all the little walkways will be called humanity walk. Uh, you know, things like that. Or, or, or soul, you know, the soul drive, that kind of thing. And little things like, uh, you know, enlightenment mall and things of that nature. And, of course, they have a people wall. And I think that the most beautiful sight of all is the people wall on a Sunday afternoon with the sun glinting on the stainless steel trees. And uh, they're about a block or so down from the Billy Graham meditation walk, which is kind of nice, too. And uh, the Pepsi-Cola, the Pepsi-Cola hall down there, for those who think young, they have a whole, uh, yeah, for the young thinking crowd, <laughs> Pepsi-Cola, they have a meditation room there for the older people who can come there with their bottles of Coke and to meditate a while. Uh, it's going to be an interesting thing. I, I, I suspect that this World's Fair is going to be the first World's Fair that was devoted entirely to dynamic commercials of one kind or another. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's already in the wind. It's already in the wind when the one millionth ticket has already been sold. What chance do we have? And not to one guy. How does, how does American Airlines buy that? Who's going to go in on that ticket? Part of what made Shepard so popular was that no one was safe from his scrutinizing eye, including himself. And his biting style was perfect for late-night radio. You ever have that feeling? That you're the only totally, just totally debauched person in the world? Well, you didn't, huh? What are you doing here, anyway, at this hour? You should be someplace where they've really made it. <laughs> no, there, there's something to do with the loser. I, I, I suspect that the losers are far more realistic than the winners. And maybe perhaps by being realistic, they become losers. Has it ever occurred to you? Oh, no, really. Uh, but, but, but you know what I mean by that? That, that? Because you more realistically assay your role in life, when you get up there to swing or whatever it is you're going to do or fiddle with the books in the accounting department, when you get up there to swing, you think that I am an unworthy person. Me, a small jot in the great eye of Buddha, am an unworthy person. That never occurs to a winner. And so naturally, since he is facing a loser, you know, because uh, to, to be a winner, you have to face losers. You cannot, two winners cannot face one another. You understand that, don't you? 
It is a philosophical concept which we would like to go into some night. If you think you're a winner, have you ever faced another winner in the same ring? Whatever that ring may be. It may be in the accounting department, cost analysis division. I don't know. But when two winners get together dead, you see dust. Well, as a matter of fact, a winner can tell another winner a thousand yards off, and they never get in the same ring with one another. Oh, no, no. Why do you think Sonny Liston is so anxious to fight Cassius Clay? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes, indeed. And, of course, the thing about a loser is that he always wants to fight the winner because he figures somehow by some fantastic trick of fate he will become a winner. Forget it. He is just another rung on the vast stepladder of a winner's climb to eventual total success on the pinnacle. Uh, she likes to... Oh, you think you're the only one who's ever had rotten thoughts? And you think that only America is where they have rotten... Please, will you? Please, please. Perhaps Shep was wrong. Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston twice, changing his name to Muhammad Ali in the process. While the cover of the next day's New York Daily News, Wednesday, November 7th, told the story of a bartender from Connecticut who'd won nearly $80,000, an all-time record twin double at Roosevelt Raceway. That same day, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, announced on NBC's Today Show that he would be a candidate for the 1964 Republican Party nomination. U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, the frontrunner, made no comment, but was expected to enter the race. President Kennedy was not expected to face opposition in his nomination as the Democrat Party candidate for 1964. And again, it probably will sound like I'm right-wing here, which is ridiculous. I'm just talking about demagoguery on both sides, but the more subtle kind of demagoguery today is the moral demagoguery, which is very intriguing. The moral demagoguery is the kind of demagoguery which states roughly this. I am a more moral person than you. And since I am a more moral person than you, all of my thoughts are more moral than you, and because all of my thoughts are more moral than you, I am right. One does not have to listen to an immoral person. <laughs> this is a very intriguing kind of demagoguery. And yet it is popping up all over the place. 